Friends, hello. Welcome to the After Hours Lounge, or welcome back to all those regular listeners out there. My name is Sandy. Uh, I am your host. Um, very, very pleased to be joined this week uh, by actually, you know, uh, the odd thing that's happening as the podcast is growing is I'm having more and more people on that I've never met before. Um, and and as the podcast grows as well, people are now getting in touch and they want to come on and, and have a bit of a chat. And I guess it's from connections from, or in this case, it's a connection from a, a previous guest, um, a guy called Richard Dale, who I had an amazing conversation with um, about his career working in the city in uh, in London and the, the mental health issues he faced there. Quite a heavy conversation, uh, but a very, very relevant one, especially for young people trying to you know, get through their their careers, and I guess uh, my guest today is is kind of a bit of an example of that. Um, was was in the city, something we're going to get into later, but but now is a, a personal coach and has moved to my old haunt uh, of the Witterings on the south coast. Um, so yeah, Mr. Rory McDonald, thank you very much for coming to join me. Thanks for the intro, Sandy. No, it's a pleasure, mate. It's a, that's a very that's a very Scottish name. Are you? A, I, I don't know if yeah, if you can tell, I'm a Scotsman. Are you? Are you a fellow uh, Northman? I was picking up a, a, a hint of an accent. I was going to ask you what took you uh, took you to the Witterings, and similarly to yourself, obviously a very a very Scottish name, but not quite uh, not quite the accent. Yeah. So my grandparents moved from Glasgow uh, just before the Second World War. Down cool. To so father was born and raised uh, in London, and right. consequently so was I, but. Um, traveled back a lot, you know, through my youth. Yeah. Hunted down lost relatives, went out to um, Hebridean Islands to find kind of family crofts and do the whole uh, family tree type thing. So oh. I, kind of, I love to get up there when I can. In fact, uh, I proposed to my fiance on South Uist, where my family's originally from back in. Amazing. Yeah, I proposed in 2018 out there. Thought we'll go full circle. Yeah, back to my roots. That's amazing. I've never, I've never made it across to the to the Western Isles. I've been as far as, uh, so I'm I'm from the Highlands uh, originally. So I, that's where I grew up and and everything like that. But I've I've never made it across. There's I, I don't know if you know one of the reasons I live down in the Witterings things because I spent many years windsurfing and it's something I do a lot of. And on the island of Tyree on the west coast, it's the the longest running uh windsurfing competition in the world is run in in scotland on the really? western isles yeah it's such it's kind of odd but the yeah i think the western isles is just the perfect it's the perfect position to get all the wind and waves and it's really mild temperature apparently but yeah yeah often often is isn't it like two or three days a year yeah that's the thing <laughs> that's the problem with it um well, when the sun's shining and you're on, on one of those white beaches you could be in the caribbean yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. The, the beach I grew up on is a, a white sand beach, um, and yeah, some some days, as as you said, two or three days a year, the water goes from being brown because it's always clear, but it's always a bit brown, it's a bit peaty. But yeah, no, it's it's a it's a beautiful part of the world. If anyone listening has never been to Scotland, um, and this this year, if you're not getting abroad, get yourself get yourself up north of the wall because it is it's a beautiful country. Yeah, I don't know what the rules are with crossing the border. They're probably uh, they're, they're probably doing a good job. Keeping, yeah, uh, keeping the English out, but if, if you can, <laughs> if you can get across the border, I, uh, they're re yeah, they're rebuilding Hadrian's Wall. Um, so, Rory, I mean, as you said, you know, we've never met. We, you know, you kind of, um, you know, a, a mutual friend who'd been on the podcast kind of in, introduced us and and things like that. So, can you can you just give us a a, a brief history of of kind of who you are and uh, and what you do? We've gone into your roots now, but tell us tell us about yourself. 
Yeah, so as you mentioned in your intro, um, I style myself as a personal coach now. Right. More, more specifically, um, I help high-performing, very, very driven professionals handle the, the kind of pressure, the pressure that that pursuit of success, um, that maintenance of success as well, um has you know has on them um help them handle the kind of fallout that it has elsewhere in their lives because if you're kind of after professional success it often comes at the detriment of your of your physical and mental health um has a fallout in terms of the quality of your relationships you know everything from what you see kind of staring back at you in the mirror when you step out of the shower to kind of how, how you speak to your wife or husband, um, to the type of kind of parent or, or child you are to your, to your um, aging parents. So that's what sort of personal coaching means to me when I'm, when I'm using the term, but then that's my kind of specific niche. Yeah. Um, this is, why am I doing that? Well, I'm doing that because I sought, this is my second career. Right. Um, my first career, as you, as you said, being sort of being in the city, although I only actually spent the very first year of my career and the very last year of my financial services career in the city of London. In, in between times, I was in East Asia, uh, first in, in Shanghai for three years and then in, in Singapore for three years. And um, I came out of that, I wasn't aware that, that I was looking for this service at the time, but, but with hindsight, I'm trying to provide the service I wish, had, I wish it had been available to me. Right. Um, and, and so that connects kind of first career with second career, really. I came out of um, commodities uh, first I sort of joined the industry as an analyst. Then I was in kind of physical trading, futures brokerage. Um, came away from that uh, thinking, oh, I'll take three months out. I'm just, I'm tired. I'm not enjoying this particular job. You know, I'm not enjoying working for this particular boss that I'm working for right now. Um, and the issue is the job. Yeah. The issue is the boss. The issue is the nature of the work issues that particular brokerage rather than seeing it as being an issue with myself um or a kind of state that i was in so i came out thinking uh let's you know let's take the summer off free will around london for the summer go on holiday come back in the autumn this was 2015 um, so I walked in one Tuesday morning at 7.30 in the morning, decided on my way to work that morning, uh, I'm packing it in today. Yeah. Um, walked out at 9.30. Wow. You know, dancing on sunshine <laughs> down, down Cannon Street, thinking, oh, this is great. It's 9.30 in the morning. I've got absolutely nothing to do today or tomorrow or for the kind of foreseeable next couple of months um and and came away from everything 
three months turned into six months. Uh, half asked a few interviews, considered a return to Singapore. Um, but in that period, um, a sort of autumn turned to winter. And I no longer had what I kind of now think of as as the protective armor around me of the of the of the job title, you know, of the status, of the money, of the clothes and the watches and the holidays and the dinners and everything else that it buys you. The sort of the edifice had crumbled mm. and I was 30 years of age wondering what life was all about, what my purpose was. Very, very angry at myself, at the world. I now realise that that anger was a kind of manifestation of depression. That was my expression of, of depression. Um, and over the next year or so, I started to kind of piece my life back together again, went into, went into therapy, um, you know, as a lot of people do, kind of dipping my toe in with uh, CBT because it's relatively um, easy to come by yeah. um, and isn't, isn't asking too much of you in terms of a kind of, you know, a Freudian retrospective analysis of your childhood or anything like that. It's, you know, it's as, I'm, as I'm sure you know, Sandy, it's about, you know, just trying to stack some kind of um, small positive behaviours, one on top of the other. Yeah. Um, and so that that felt like a relatively easy, well, easy is the wrong word, but that's the place, that's the place I started anyway there. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I have, I've always been interested in, I studied history and politics first, first degree, um, immediately after leaving school and I've always been interested in anthropology and, um, and evolutionary genetics and things like this. And, uh, and so I was interested in the ancestral food movement and this idea that we would look back to um, our paleolithic forebears for kind of the best uh, the best idea as to how we should be eating what we should be eating yeah but at the time I, I was already kind of playing with a paleo diet um, you know and it and that's quite easy to maintain because it you know it sits with your it sits with a kind of Chateaubriand steak dinner with your client when you're a broker. Yeah. You just have a plate of red meat or something. Yeah. You know, so there, there's, at the time it was, uh, it worked. It, it sort of fit with the lifestyle as well. But that was sort of me going, okay, what, well, there's something um, happening with my digestive system that isn't right. I'll call it IBS because. That's what my mum calls a similar collection of symptoms. That's what a, a GP will tell you is going on when they can't diagnose you with a with a disease. So yep. that was the kind of digestive health background. Came away from the job, 
depression, I was going to say depression struck, but it was really a, a kind of realization that I was depressed rather than a, you know, that turning point. Yeah. Um, where you, you, you think suddenly, oh, fuck, I'm depressed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's crept over, over months and years. Yeah. It, it's really uh, a light bulb moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you do get a sort of light bulb moment. You just realize that you're, you know, what you think, what you what you're seeing, what you're realizing for the first time is actually the kind of the end of a of a of a process, isn't it? Yes. So, you know, I'm I'm butchering this answer to your question, but essentially I've landed uh 30 years of age questioning what I'm all about what my purpose is on this planet yeah dealing with depression trying to find sorry i'm gonna put my i forgot to put my phone off here we go dealing with depression um trying to kind of find my own answers to deal with digestive issues gut related issues i was experiencing right and kind of trying to start to find my own solutions yeah so um through training, through manipulation of my diet, through taking on kind of the first, um, the techniques that I was kind of picking up at CBT and then kind of adding to that and starting to play with meditation and getting into um, really trying to understand that interplay between my mindset and uh, my physical health and then that that feedback loop that goes from physical health to kind of mental health mindset as well and sort of had the realization that that's that nexus is is kind of where it's at yeah that's where that's only by looking at how you know your your physiology um and your neurology um interact and kind of and play off one another only there am I going to find the solutions for me and then then that expanded to me going okay let's put in some proper training around that then um and uh and set up a set up a service where I can go and do that for other people or where I can go and help other people so then I embarked on uh you know four or five years of training and education um, and started my coaching business mid 2018 cool. uh, and have sort of honed and evolved things since uh, to we to the point where we find ourselves here today we find ourselves here yeah that's so interesting as we said you know before I uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, first of all, you know, that's. I think your that story probably resonates with an awful lot of people. Um, I mean, I, I consider myself a weird one because I didn't go down that path of, or maybe you can you can answer this. But when you when you hit eighteen, I mean, was there? Did you feel a pressure to? I've got to go to uni and then I've got to go and make loads of money and work in the city and try and forge a career because that's what we've got to do did did you feel that pressure or were you because i feel like there's there's often a couple of types of people isn't there some people feel the pressure to do that and other people want to do it because you're you're young and you've you kind of want to chase that dream um were you which which one of those two were you it was 
I don't remember there ever being another option. Right. Okay. Other than to go to university. Yeah. And and, and immediately as well. How old are you? No. Thirty six. Thirty. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So I'm I'm twenty. I'm twenty nine. So yeah, I was just figuring out because I mean, even even for me, it's it was similar at school. Like yeah. it is it was a, a really it was really difficult to to break away from that idea of like you go you know you finish school and then you apply to university and then you go to university and that's what you do you know absolutely and um i mean you'll you'll tell sure but if you chose otherwise that would have been you know a daunting place to find yourself i would imagine you know you'd have you'd have had you'd have taken a very brave decision to do otherwise because you know it ran counter to to the narrative yeah is you know you will find happiness in life if you do well in your exams at school those grades carry you to university from university get yourself onto a good graduate scheme at a kind of you know magic circle law firm or a, a big five accountancy firm or you know yeah. if you're you know if you're that way inclined you know heading to to, to banking um and then from that will you know will spring the salary that helps you buy the house um and you'll find somebody like like-minded in that process in which you'll marry and then don't worry don't worry about it because if you tick all of those boxes you'll be fine and you'll be happy yeah um and that i don't know if we're I don't know if we're the first generation for which that's broken down. Yeah. I know that for, you know, perhaps that kind of the people who are 45, 50, maybe between myself and my parents, perhaps they'd, if, if somebody of, of that, that ilk were here talking to us now, they'd say, no, we were kind of at the forefront of that. But I think if you, if you were a young adult, say through your twenties into your thirties in, 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 you know, eighties, nineties, and you went through that kind of Thatcherite economic boom, especially in the Southeast of England. Yeah. That was, you know, if you could, if you could have two cars and, you know, get your, get your double glazing done and have your detached house and everything else. You've made it. You were, yeah, you were living, you were living the dream, weren't you? You were living the Thatcherite dream. And I think, um you know that's i think you know one of the defining moments for uh sort of for those of us who are you know in our you're approaching 30 i'm in my mid-30s you know find ourselves around that age now is is the the 2008 financial crisis you know and and it changed it changed my perception. I was too young, I think, at the time to really appreciate what was happening. And then that was two, 2008 slash 2009 was my last year of school. And I remember, and it, what's interesting as well, as you say there about the southeast of England, I grew up in the highlands of Scotland where things are very, very different. Life moves, life moves. And it's maybe sounds cliche to say, but life does move a lot slower up there. You know, there isn't, no one's really talking about going into finance or you know, all, all this sort of stuff necessarily, but there's still that huge pressure. And maybe it's, maybe it's not necessarily that mentality. Maybe it's more of a small town mentality of like, 
you can't go and do that. You have to go to uni. Like you can't do that. No one does that. Do you know mm. what I mean? So it's, I think even, and, and maybe that's accelerated by, you know, broader global things happening, like, like what happened in, in 2008 and things, but, and that, that probably definitely affected a lot of my generation without us even, or with my sort of age group without us even realizing it, you know? Yeah, there, 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 there probably was, um, you know, a, a, an impact felt at the subconscious level. Yeah. In terms, of, un, undoubtedly there is because, you know, when you watch media reports every day uh, uh, that are kind of not, I was going to say foretelling, but just reporting, you know, uh, very real financial doom and gloom at a young impressionable, impressionable age, you kind of, it puts you into a, a place of, of fear, into a sort of scarcity mindset. And it, it you know, it impacts decisions you you make about your yourself and your own life but in turn back to your kind of question about did I feel a, a pressure or an inevitability almost to go to university at 18 it was like yeah. there's I grew up in uh, North Essex about an hour from the city right uh, um, an hour from Liverpool Street Station on the train. So I knew kids, lads mainly, who at 16, perhaps if they weren't that academically minded, but, you know, they had the gift of the gab, they could still go in to the city in that way that, you know, when I did a few years later, I realised that, you know, you were either, my colleagues were either, you know, public, public school boys. Yeah in like penny loafers or they were they were kind of west essex wide boys yeah (laughs) it was the the old sort of barra boy um market trader gift of the gap yeah go in there be a phone broker have one pinned to either ear kind of you know seen seen uh wall street you know yeah 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 Michael Douglas and that was enough you know um and as long as you were prepared to take shit off um your you know angry senior colleagues and you were prepared to be there early and stay there late and do basically anything and yeah. you're a fast learner then then um uh that's what they could go and do it and they could go and do it very well and they could make very, very good livings for themselves. I know, you know, lots of guys who, who have done that. I think it's almost sad in a way that that's dying out, that that kind of option is going, if you like, yeah. you know, and now the market is much more regulated. It's much more sterile, you know, it's much more, um, sit behind a desk, do everything. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're not a double maths grad from Cambridge who can write a trading algo, then you're in trouble. You're not necessarily what they're looking for. Um, and there obviously aren't many of those. So, yeah, that's sort of dying out really. But that was an option at, say, 16, but it, it wasn't really an option for me. Education was highly prized in my household I think because probably because my parents um didn't you know didn't continue beyond their what would have been GCEs then 
Um, you know, they wanted you I, to. They wanted you to kind of push it, I suppose. Yeah, and and I'm the um, I'm the eldest child, so right. the, the first the, one, the first, first one in the family to go to university. My mum left school at fifteen, and you know hasn't stopped her running a very successful hairdressing business, but um, she hadn't had that experience. Yeah, yeah. So and, you to do it kind of thing yeah my dad stayed until he was 16 so he did an additional year but he didn't go on to what would have been his desire back then which would have been to go to art college right he couldn't he couldn't afford it you know his, his family couldn't afford it he had to go out to work um at 16 so there i think there was the desire to to go further i think every i think all parents want their children to do well, to be a better version. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be a better version of them. And, and so I think there was that, that desire to push on there. It was never a consideration as to whether I would do, do a levels. I remember doing do you think that was a, do you think that was a, I mean, you know, looking, looking back and then, you know, really, I guess this will lead in, lead into you eventually kind of leaving and things, but I mean, so did you do you think looking back you felt a pressure from your parents to do it not just because you know like to try and kind of I guess every every kid gets it at a certain point they're like I want to make my parents proud but do you think you were looking back were you doing it just to do that or were you doing it because you you actually kind of wanted to do it you know it's so hard to divorce the two things yeah and, um I come into talking to you today having done I was doing a refresher course yesterday on the psychology of decision making. Right. Um, because, uh, you know, so much of what I do is about people either making positive serving decisions for themselves or making self-sabotaging decisions. Yeah. You know? So I was doing this refresher yesterday at a Goldsmiths course. And um, basically, you know, we the guy was talking about the nature of uh, the professor that was running the course about the nature of memory and so i've come from this course knowing that you know what i what i perceive to be uh, my memories of those situations are highly highly inaccurate yeah. based on the based on the science that i was learning yesterday yeah. so i'm sort of in with caveats here sandy but no it didn't feel i've always felt pressure to make my parents proud right yeah in fact to this day i i find it hard to to self-validate i find it hard to take it's hard work for me yeah it's yeah. hard it's hard work for me to do that. i still look to you know external validation yeah especially if I'm feeling low you know then i'll yeah. then, then then that's even that feels even more important. Um, so yeah, I there was always a pressure to do well at school, right? Um, and as a consequence of doing well at school, university is an option. So I suppose in a way there was pressure. Yeah. Um, but I remember being very excited to to leave home. Yeah. I I decided I could have gone to university in London, but um my 
sort of family's financial situation would have meant that I'd, I'd probably stayed at home and commuted. Right. Yeah, which isn't and what That wasn't the university experience that I wanted, so I decided to, to go out to Manchester um, and, you know, couldn't, couldn't wanted nobody from my school year to go there. Yeah. Make a completely kind of fresh start. Yeah, uh, I want. I wanted the the opportunity to reinvent, and I think that's a bit of a motif that's that kind of repeated itself through my twenties as well. But yeah, I mean, so moving, getting getting on to that then. So you know, afterwards you you do this, and then you say, you know, you by the sounds of it, you know, you you kind of got the big the big job, and you're you know you're traveling, and you're you're in you're in Shanghai, and you're in Singapore, and you're you're a bit in London, and things like that. Did you, did you in your last sort of few years or even year or whatever uh, of doing that job, did you start to feel like something was wrong? Like, did you start to, because for, for uh, again, for me, I, in my career and two very, very different careers and, and, and things like that. But for me, when I, when I left my career and, and completely changed the way I did it, I, I could feel it for about six months before I actually was like, right, I'm, I'm throwing in the towel in this. And I felt, I felt like, I didn't necessarily feel like I'd hit the roof, but I was like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being fulfilled here. I kind of feel like I, my purpose had just, I was lacking a purpose. Um, mm. How, how, how did you feel? And, and did you have that awareness um, or was it very much, I guess, as we said before, like a light bulb moment where you're like, no, fuck this, I'm out. Um, for at least the last two years, if not the last three years. Yeah. Um, there was, I was chasing after something. Okay. I was chasing after feeling better than I did. I was, I was, I was running away from from jobs, from relationships, from you know geographic locations, changing cities, even right. to in order that I, you know, on the, on the, I didn't yet have that awareness that what needed fixing was me yeah yeah you know, right. I thought, well you know oh god this this relationship isn't working yeah and obviously you know obviously it was her fault not mine yeah <laughs> naturally um uh how wrong i was and i thought oh, i don't really want to live here anymore or you know i don't really like this job and because of the nature of my work and because of the kind of market situation. So I was in um, commodities specifically still making raw materials and the Chinese is just buying this stuff yeah. like hand over fist, um, feeding economic, the economic boom. So I could get away with it because I, I was in demand. I was good at what I did. Um, I was well known in the industry. And so if I wanted to change my job, I could go and find another yeah. one with a better title and a higher salary. And so you could almost go, well, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll ditch it. I've only been here a year, but I'll ditch it. I've only been here nine months. I'll ditch it and I'll go and do, I'll go and do something else. So I was sort of jumping from job to job, from city to city, from relationships. Yeah to relationship and that was a sort of two to three year period and i'd be i'd get very very low yeah and b 
because of, I don't think I was even, it would have never occurred to me to ever have phoned in sick for mental health reasons. Yeah. It's like, it's not just that there was a stigma, it wasn't an option. Yeah, I was it gonna was, say that. No, no one even had the language yeah. to talk about these things. So I would phone in sick and I would in, sometimes, I, I was gonna say I'd invent physical symptoms, but I didn't have to because the interplay between my, my mental health, between depression and anxiety and what was happening in my gut was such that I had the physical, I had the physical symptoms, yeah. um, but I would have to make more of them in order to justify having you know, to a whole week off instead of a day off or something yeah. like that. And I found these periods of having a week off were becoming more frequent um the weekends i lived alone we'd be out all night we'd be out several nights a week through the week either entertaining or just out drinking after work to kind of to take the edge off to wind down yeah and then that becomes habitual yeah apathetic. Um, yes and so then the weekends i would often not speak to anybody at all because i lived alone I would be incredibly hungover, um, and I now realise, you know, I would be the 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 symptoms of depression would manifest more at the weekend because I didn't have work to mask it. Yeah. Uh, um, so I just switched my phone off for two days, not speak to anyone. I lived on the other side of the world. It was incredibly worrying for my mum when she just wouldn't hear from me for five seven days. You know, not knowing what was going on um and so yeah these periods were becoming more frequent and i was outside nightclubs at four in the morning in singapore phoning my sister in floods of tears because you know i was deeply unhappy but i yeah i didn't know why that was my next oh. question that was my next question i mean like what you know uh, uh, did did you reach out at all because it is it's so difficult when you're separated geographically i mean yeah sure it's got easier we've got we've all got phones and and facetime and facebook and it's it's never been easier to talk to each other but at the same time that doesn't necessarily help so did you were you were you kind of reaching out uh you know uh intermittent points like you say phoning your sister or like did your did your parents for example have have any idea of it I was probably acting out more than reaching out. Right. Yeah. That's, Subconsciously, yeah. I was probably trying to get that message out there without saying it. That, that kind of all is not well. Right. Um, but I, th I think it was subconscious, not because I was like consciously dodging having the conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't think I yet had that aware uh, the awareness as to kind of what was going on with me. Um, but yes, I. My my mum and my sister would have been worried about me, but they'd have been worried about me in terms of thinking, oh, you know, that girl you're with, we don't make, you know, we're not sure she's right for you or, right. you, know, you know, you shouldn't drink so much and get yourself into that state. But they were looking, they were looking externally just like yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's because I think I'd, I'd always... I'd always been a very robust, confident child. Right. 
Um, so it wasn't... Didn't cross their mind kind of thing. Yeah, I don't think it crossed their mind. And I'd come home for visits and, of course, I'd be absolutely delighted to be there. Yeah. You so know, they, they never saw the dark side. They never so saw they thought, Yeah, yeah, they saw the best of me. Yeah. Plus, I was, you know, half cut a lot of the time when I was kind of on a, you know, a visit home anyway. Yeah, it's always different, isn't it? Um, and that had just become, I mean, the sheer volume of alcohol that myself and all of my colleagues were consuming on a weekly basis just to get yourself through the week. Yeah. Um, was, you know, frightening. But, um, yeah, so I didn't, I knew something was up, Sandy, but I didn't know what. And yeah. that's a scary place to be in. Yeah, it's terrifying. It, t- it takes, like, that. that's one, one, one thing I say now that, you know, I say a lot, you know, realistically, mental health issues, they're so different to physical health issues where, you know, like a broken bone will heal eventually and you'll be able to go and do what you did before with it. But to me, mental health issues, I don't think they're ever some, they're something that you ever truly get rid of. I think all you have to do is focus on making the problem smaller, but I don't think it ever really goes away. And all we need to do is have an awareness. And that's one of the most important things. So, you know, I'm lucky now for me, like, what, what used to be a, a couple of bad weeks is now, you know, gone down to potentially a couple of bad days or even just a bad day. And I think that's come down to awareness because I know when I wake up in the morning, oh, um, there's some, something's not right. Or, you know, throughout the day or something, you know, a trigger or something, I'm like, nah, this isn't right. And then I now know, you know, steps or, or things I can do in order to kind of fix myself, whether it's, you know, going for a walk or watching something I love or, you know, certain things, calling, calling my family, you know, things like that. But before that, before you get to that position and you realize, oh shit, this is what's going on. Like you said, that's a, it's a terrifying place to be, isn't it? Hmm. And, you know, you talking there and us sort of discussing awareness brought to mind a great Viktor Frankl quote about, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies your freedom. Right. And I went from having, you know, no space whatsoever, just, you know, a fag paper's width between stimulus and response. It was completely unconscious. Yeah. Stimulus response like that, no awareness and therefore no ability to, um, to intervene. Yeah. And that uh, for me, building awareness is just is widening that space. Yeah. Putting more time between stimulus and response. And so kind of on a macro, oh, sorry, on a micro level, that might be how you react to something that is, is said to you in the moment. But on a more macro level, it's a, you know, it's akin to what you're talking about in terms of making sure a day or two days doesn't become two weeks. Yeah. Having that awareness and being able to take action and not just being on kind of autopilot and just yeah. going boom, 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 spiraling. Before you know it, you think, Jesus, I felt good a week ago. How the fuck did I get here? Yeah. That's like, such a good that's such a good way of looking at it, is like autopilot. And I guess that's what you must have been on for a while when you're in shanghai or wherever you are like you said and it's a bit it becomes that vicious circle and it's something i talked about with 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 dicky as well in this this sort of corporate lifestyle of like 
And my, my dad's been in the city for 30 years, so I'm very familiar with it as well, even though it's nothing I ever experienced. But when I would come back from working abroad, we'd go out for lunch with him and all his pals and you go around London and you just, it's basically the 15 pint challenge stretched out over lunchtime. You know, it's, it, it's yeah. absolute mayhem and, you know, and it's still called work. You know, you're meeting clients and you're doing this and you're, you're doing that. And, you know, so it's, it's like, you, you, you know, high stress work, high stress work, and then it's full power, you know, drinking and all this. And yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. That's a, that's an awful lot of fun, but you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. And if it's just done on this vicious kind of loop, um, in, like you said, you just, I imagine you must just go into autopilot and then you don't even realize, you know. You do. And of course, the lack of sleep and the volume of alcohol, you know, not to mention the drugs, yeah, the, the poor quality nutrition. I was a smoker then as well. All of, all of that stuff is contributes to, um, you know, this, well, it's sort of like the it's the perfect storm in terms of a lead into uh, to a sort of mental health issue or episode. Yeah. But more than that, even you could say, well, they're just byproducts of the job, you know, and you could do the job with and you could eat better and you could sleep better and you could um, you could drink less or you could go out on fewer nights you don't have to be a smoker and you can manage your stress better and everything else yeah but I guess it's true to a certain extent but what's malicious is actually that to the industry rewards awful behavior yeah that's what I was going to say the culture is doesn't doesn't look at that as like a favorable lifestyle even though it generally is isn't it you know yeah, but even more so than that, I was getting my, you know, we all get our, we get our cues as to the utility of our behaviour from our environment, don't we? Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. Do something and it's it's favourably viewed in your environment. You the feedback well. loop is do that again, right? Yeah. And being a mean, nasty, angry person made me better at my job. Yeah. I got promoted. I made more money. So it, it was the, the cycle drove itself. So all of these things that made me a really good phone broker made me a fucking terrible boyfriend Yeah. because, you know, you would convince people of your point of view and in order to get, in order to get a, a trade done. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you spend your whole life just, talking to your to your nearest and dearest the in same that kind of manipulative manner yeah um, and you know being being somebody that people didn't want to to cross you know it's quite a cutthroat world your own colleagues are trying yeah, to your business away from you you know so you need to come across as somebody who's you don't who's, want to fuck with you don't want to fuck with yeah yeah um and with client entertainment as well, you, you know, to, to a certain extent, you're kind of, you're there to, you know, you're there to entertain them, you know, yeah. so you end up kind of playing up to that. Yeah. Um, and taking on this persona of the entertainer and everything else. Um, all of which is, um, you know, a very, very warped 
realization of life of yeah of, of, well of you at your kind yeah. of best and worst but on hyperdrive basically yeah and it's not sustainable um so did you did you you know li- living like that then and obviously you know now now doing the personal coaching for what it sounds like you've you've basically taken you as, as you said at the start and that's such a another really cool way of looking at things is you were like right what looking back what did i need and it's something it's something my my friend told me when i quit my job and i, I was doing what i'm doing now and he said Mo- most people go down and go down into the mine and they dig for gold but he's like what you're doing now is you're standing outside the mine selling shovels you know so i guess you essentially now have decided to become a shovel seller and selling something that back then when you were in the mine digging for gold you were like oh, i could really do with a better shovel do you know yeah. what i mean whereas you know and that that's really interesting but b- before you before you did that you know i guess you kind of did you was was there like an intervention from your family or anything like that or was it was it a personal did it did it happen in your mind you know did you kind of take a look at yourself and you were like this this all this all really needs to change i know you you've mentioned on your on your website and we we said before we hit record you you now suffer with a, a chronic health condition so i don't know if that potentially um added to it as well well, this, this is this is something that's um, it's inflammatory bowel disease, right. and it's something that um, I wasn't aware of uh, in my previous career. And um, when I was sort of first deciding to go into to the world of sort of health and wellness and establishing myself as a personal coach and everything else around that. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't even possess um, that knowledge then that, yeah. that I so that's a more kind of recent um, diagnosis and journey, really. Um, yeah. But it took obviously taking my health more seriously, improving my knowledge around um, the symptoms I was suffering yeah. um, to then get me in front of the right people to get the diagnosis. Yeah. Um, in terms of how that has an effect on my mental health, uh, you know, it's very much a two-way street in that um, if I'm particularly anxious, then um, the the likelihood is I will have a kind of inflammatory flare-up in my bowel. And likewise, if I consume foods um, and you know, like dark alcohol, red wine, beer, things like this um, that I know are particularly kind of triggering for me and I have that kind of inflammatory flare-up, then it's going to have a, a, you know, a negative uh, fallout on my on my mental health as well. Um, does it create, does it, I, I guess, because I mean, I, I this is odd. I don't think I've ever really spoken about this on the podcast before, um, but I... One of the ways, my biggest problem I have with anxiety is needing the toilet. Yeah. Um, and it, some days it literally cripples me to the point where I'm like, I can't, I can't leave the house. And I get so worried about needing the toilet that I literally can't leave the house. Um, and, and I wonder, do, and oddly enough, the two, two people I've had on the podcast before, after these are two people I've done a podcast in person with. And after we'd finished recording, we kind of chat and, you know, yeah, and, and I chat to them and they're like, and this is one of them's a, 
maybe this doesn't make a difference, but he, he's got a very good job and, you know, a fairly high powered career and all this. And wouldn't you wouldn't think it. And he's like, yeah, I'm the same. He's like, I have to take four emodiums before I go into the city and have meetings and all this stuff. And it, I was like, fuck, I, was like, I wonder how many other people. And this is me. I'm you're, you're episode 61 of this podcast and I've never spoken about it. And I talk openly about everything else, but I've always felt odd talking about it because it makes me it make it. it I guess it's like a lack of control, isn't it, in your own body? And I know you say you've restricted, you know, the nutrition and all that stuff you've changed. And I've changed certain things as well to try and help. But I've had all these tests, everything, and they're like, no, mate, you're you're fine. You know, it's for me, it's a, an anxiety. It's a, it's a brain thing, you know. Yeah. And, and I know a number of people who experience something very, very similar to you. Yeah. Members of my family and clients of mine as well. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you're not alone. No, it's something I've realised as I've gone. And, and 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 what it, I mean, it's it's entirely natural and to be expected. In yeah. that, you know, the reason why we feel like we need to go to the toilet when we're anxious is because as um, adrenaline spikes in your body. Yeah. Um, and you go, you go through that fight or flight response. Yeah. Your body's resources, i.e. the oxygen in your blood, is prioritised for heart and lungs and major muscles because you're either going to need to fight or run. Or right. Both. And so your bowel doesn't need that oxygenated blood and it doesn't want to have to be... Di- digestion, human digestion is hugely energy intensive. Yeah. So in order that you don't spend that energy on that and you spend it on fighting the tiger, we, we're going to empty your bowels as fast as possible. That's what's happening in your body. No one has ever told me that before. Yeah. That's, that's so, cool. so that's entirely, you know, that's an entirely natural process that, yeah. has, that has evolved in, in human beings. And I'm, I'm sure not just in human beings, but it's the same for our, for our animal cousins. But then um, what I think then gets layered upon that is your learned response to anxiety. Well, that's, yeah, I think that's that's been the biggest thing for me now because often, you know, say I'm a long car journey or whatever and I'm really worried and I get really anxious before we leave somewhere and oh, I go to it four times and I'm like, oh, I don't even need it anymore. But the minute we get in the car and start going, I'm fine. Yeah. It, it's fine, but it's the, the build-up because you... I, I now associate it with it. And this probably goes for any other um, symptom that people get with anxiety, you know, whether it's biting your nails or, or whatever, you know, you, you end up falling into a rhythm of, oh, I've got to go somewhere and I don't know if there's going to be a bathroom. So I, I bet I, I'm probably going to need the toilet loads before I go. And you, I suppose your brain, well, I get you by the sounds of it. Well, this is what you do. So you can speak a, a lot better to it than I can. I can, I'm only talking from my personal experience, but I think that's what's happened to, to the point with me of, it's that that response has now become ingrained into like my muscle memory if you know what i mean yes uh and if if we were in a kind of one-to-one client setting we'd we'd work on things from both sides so you try to for example you'd identify some nutritional um factors that exacerbate or accelerate the process yeah so commonly 
it would be dairy. Yeah, I don't eat dairy. Caffeine. Yeah. Right. So obviously, you know, the worst thing you could do when you're in that state would be to have a latte. Yeah. <laughs> the combination of those two things. So you'd be looking at that on the one hand, but that's just to help. Um, there is a positive feedback loop through through diet and exercise, but really it kind of mindsets the driver. So it is a two-way street and you do get that upstream positive impact of doing things like having that awareness around, okay, I'm really anxious now, so I'm not going to exacerbate that by putting caffeine or yeah. dairy or gluten or whatever your thing might be on top of that. But, you know, that's at best it's a sticking plaster solution yeah. while you start working top down as you've pointed out yourself sandy kind of starting starting in the mind um and and looking at at getting you out of a place where it comes back to that that stimulus and response yeah and and that triggering that kind of um it's called the sympathetic nervous system when you're on kind of red alert. It's not very sympathetic to you <laughs> in terms of how things play out. But, you know, when you're in that highly adrenalized um, fight or flight state, kind of looking at, at kind of breaking, yeah. breaking that, that response loop. Um, so is this, is, is it all, you know, I mean, I'm very aware that we're basically turning this into a, a personal coaching session for me. But I mean, is is, <laughs> is, is this stuff? Is, is this all the kind of stuff you do? Because oh, you know, everything we've we've spoken about so far of your your career and your your change, and you you've got such a vast amount of experience. And I guess that's why you are working with, you know, as you say, like high powered individuals, so people that are probably in similar careers to what you were in, you know, things like that. And is is what we've just done for the last five, 10 minutes. Is, is that the kind of conversation you, you have with, with a lot of people? I know, not, not, not necessarily about, um, you know, needing the toilet or, or whatever, but is, is that, is that the kind of thing that you get into? Cause as I said, before we hit record, something I'm really interested in is this idea of personal coaching and it as a career. And it's something I've come across an awful lot um, as I've got more into the mental health world through the podcast and things. And it's something I didn't really know existed. Um, so so yeah, this is a very long-winded question. I apologise, but is is that a, is that a kind of typical thing that you would you would kind of talk to your clients about? It is it is, it is typical, yeah, and it, and it's those types of conversations are surprisingly common. Yeah, um, people come to me with a long list of health complaints, right? Multiplied by the huge amount of, of worry that they're experiencing around those health complaints. Okay. Uh, um, there's, so they, they pitch up with these huge number of complaints usually. Um, and after two or three, four weeks, maybe the second or third time that we've spoken to them, the, the, my response, the response I'll get will usually be, this is so simple. Yeah. Like these fixes are so easy. Like why didn't I think to do this sooner? Can you give me an example, a example of those, those, those kind of fixes? I mean, you, okay. so, I'm not saying spill, spill your secrets, but can you, yeah, give me a, an, an example of, of what a, a client, a client came to me recently and, um, she was convinced 
that um, she had a digestive issue right. um, that was preventing her from absorbing protein properly um, because she couldn't gain any, she couldn't gain strength. Right. She, um, she felt weak when she was working out. Um, she had a number of foods that she thought she was allergic to or in or intolerant of because of the kind of the symptoms that she was getting after eating them and we got her not eating her breakfast and her lunch at her desk without looking at her phone doing a one minute breathing exercise before eating in order to take her from that fight or flight, highly adrenalized state into the more kind of parasympathetic rest and digest state. Yeah. Lunch her, break, got, yeah, a lunch break, yeah. who'd, have, who'd have thunk it, yeah. and, got a, and got her chewing her food to like baby food consistency instead of just wolfing it down. Yeah. And 80% of those problems disappeared. Really? And, and the 20% that she was left with now feels manageable. Yeah. Don't feel like a big deal. And so now we can just pick them off one by one. And she's all chilled out about it because 80% of these other things have gone. And so she's just left with like two or three areas that we can now really focus on, yeah. dedicate time resource to, and really get into the long grass on because we don't have to worry about all that other stuff. You know, she has no food allergies. She has no food intolerances. We've not gone and done any testing. She just experiences no digestive issues around those foods anymore. So essentially, essentially, it was a, I mean, it was it was a kind of a mental, a mental barrier and a mental behaviour that she was doing. Of, and I guess it's what so many people doing and people listening. Like people eat lunch at their desks, don't they? They don't. I think that minute of breathing is is so important isn't it and often even doesn't even need to be that minute of breathing but as i said my girlfriend she usually makes a point of walking to the shop from she's a, as i said she's a primary school teacher but she'll make a point of walking to the shop to go and get her lunch rather than packing it or anything like that because i think she likes the walk to kind of just decompress before she gets a load of food and sits down and eats it whereas i think a lot of people miss out on that let's just take a minute and just you know, it's literally in the name. It's a lunch break. It's a break. You're meant to step away from, you know, and, and a lot of people, unfortunately, aren't afforded the opportunity to have that break, are they? No. And if you, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to why I think that this is incredibly, why there are a whole host of sort of disguised digestive issues yeah. with like type A personalities very driven uh, ambitious people but yeah. before i do just on that kind of to finish our point about lunch breaks and this yeah. idea of your kind of of your girlfriend walking to the shops and decompressing and everything else you know if you take your lunch at your desk you don't think about what you're eating no. and you don't chew properly then your food has hit your stomach before you're producing um enough stomach acid to properly digest that food. Yeah. But just the act of thinking about food, particularly if you can, you can see it in front of you and you can smell it. 
stimulates the vagus nerve. It sets you up. Vagus nerve stimulation then leads to kind of the stomach acid production. So you're already receptive. And then chewing slowly as well is another communicator to your central nervous system that your stomach needs to be prepared for food. Yes. They feel like really simple things. Oh, chewing. What difference is chewing going to make? Yeah. Oh, thinking about my food for a minute before I eat it. It sounds like a load of woo-woo nonsense. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't you it? Know, it's not at all. It, it, it's like it, it's an integral part. Digestion starts before the food even hits your lips. Um, but uh, sort of digestion aside, I think this client and, in fact, another female client of mine who's um, has a very high-powered job in London who incidentally has the same sort of rush to go to the toilet with with adrenaline that you were, or with anxiety that you were talking about earlier with both of them. um, If when I first meet people, we go, you know, in depth into all areas of their life and I'll talk about how they currently manage stress. Um, They both said to me and pop, this, this type type A personality often does. Oh, I handle stress incredibly well <laughs> because I do at work. You know, at work I'm so good at managing stress. And what it's back to, you know, to awareness, like we were talking about earlier. Often, what's needed is just a little bit more awareness in terms of showing them. Okay, so you think you manage stress really well. Let's look at these collections of symptoms you've got and show you how they're all stress related. So unwittingly, you know, at a conscious level, you might feel that you're completely in command of your environment, but it's having a detrimental effect on your body that you're not aware of. And so let's look at your stress management, at your coping techniques. Yeah. Because you might think they're working right now, but they're not because it's showing up in symptom X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, but that's incredibly common because, of course, if you're, a, if you're an ambitious, driven, high-achieving person, you're confident. Yeah. Um, you're in command of yourself and of, of your environment at work. Um, and so you're used to thinking the world operates and I operate exactly as I think it does. Yeah. You know, so it's not, it's not surprising that some of these things haven't been noticed um, because they kind of run counter to the narrative that, you know, I know everything and I'm in command of everything. It's all in my control. Yeah. yeah. So is, I mean, I know it, again, it says, it says on your site, you know, you're a nutritional therapist and all this generally, do you, and I think you've made, you, you may have mentioned earlier on, you do you kind of start on the outside and you start looking at the physical symptoms of, you know, uh, a bad stomach or I think this gives me no energy and, and all this. And then do you kind of work your way in or, or up to kind of mental things or, or does it just vary depending on, on the client and what they what they kind of tell you on that first session? Usually lead off with physicality because people find it much easier to talk about yeah. how, they, how they feel in their body. Yeah, true than they do um, to, to discuss their mental health. 
state of mind or their emotional health. So, and in listening to somebody talk about their physical symptoms, you very quickly get an insight on their mindset. Yeah. Because how does, if I, if you came to me and you started and you said to me, Rory, and yeah, I, sometimes I get so anxious that I don't want to leave the house because I'm worried about, you know, not being able to find a toilet. Yeah. We're talking about, ostensibly, we're talking about your digestive system, aren't yeah. we? We're going to yeah. start some more questions. But then uh, you would say, well, how does that, how does that make you feel about yourself? Or how yeah. do you feel you're perceived for that? And then very quickly, we'll start to kind of pick up on a few stories. Yeah. Um, you know, a few scripts that you're running um, around around yourself and around that symptomology and everything else. And, you know, while people come to me with complex issues, they always come to me with aesthetic stuff as well. Yeah. You know, I don't, I haven't met a client yet that hasn't wanted to sort out this digestive issue or this energy issue or this hormonal issue, but also didn't want to look better in the mirror. Yeah. So as soon as you're talking about body image, you've got a window on mental health. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's all one, one's, one's always going to be tied, tied to the other, I suppose. Um, but it, I, I, I tend to work concurrently you know, bottom up with kind of nutrition and, you know, that's a terrible pun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> with nutrition and trading and like top down on the mindset. Yeah. Um, concurrently, but get some, get some quick nutrition and exercise wins going. In like it's amazing. First couple of weeks. Yeah. And then and mindset comes in a little bit more gradually. Yeah. Well, it's amazing how much, how much different, how much difference things like getting a bit of exercise and changing, you know, a couple of meals you eat, it kind of almost makes a subconscious difference on your mental health anyway. It certainly did for me, you know, even just get, you know, taking myself out for a walk and, or, you know, doing that or lifting weights for 20 minutes, half an hour, or again, not really mentioned it much, but for me, like um, windsurfing doing that for me, that's a complete reset button. And I notice once you get used to doing it, and you, you know, you get used to going for a run or for me going windsurfing, anything like that. It it does become a bit of a crux um for your for your mental health, but it but it massively it massively helps subconsciously. You just feel like a happier person when you know you've been outside and moved your body a little bit. Yeah, and of course, you know, when, while you're windsurfing, you're you're releasing endorphins. Yeah. You're coming off the, the you know, I know that you're a very good windsurfer, but occasionally you come off and no, I come off a lot. I definitely come, come off. Yeah. And when, you, when you hit that cold water, you know, we experience something called hormesis, which is like basically good stress. Oh, I love. Yeah, yes. Yeah, amazing. So you get that, you get that, uh, you get that cold exposure, don't you? You get that shock. Yeah. You get that immune reaction um, where essentially your body is creating um, uh endogenous opioids basically yeah you're making, you're making your own drugs you're making yourself high <laughs> yeah you're making yourself high um so you're you're getting all of that physiologically as well as the kind of mindfulness of not yeah. being on the phone not looking at a screen letting your mind wander having that kind of 
the occupation of the forebrain in terms of you assessing where the wind is and where you're going to turn and you're just in the moment aren't you looking at the waves but also i'm sure at the back of your mind you're you're working things through as well you may be not consciously aware of it but you're kind of things are shifting about definitely yeah um, it's the same for any sport really isn't it i suppose and it's something it's something i've always said as well is having something and maybe it'd be interesting to know what you if you talk about this much as well but having something in your life that is intrinsically motivating so something that you do kind of just for you so rather than you know like these high-powered people in their big careers but if they've got something in their life that they do purely because they love it not because it makes them money or because it makes them look good in front of other people you know so, for example, for, for me, that's definitely windsurfing. I mean, windsurfing wind is a difficult one because, you know, I was saying on, on a podcast yesterday, like it's automatically a pretty cool sport. So you kind of do it and you do go, oh, I look pretty cool in front of people. But ultimately, if I really think about it, I do it because I like doing it and it's fun. And I think having something like that is also so important for your mental health, something that you can just immerse yourself in for a couple of hours a week, if that. You know, something that you can, like you said, put your put your focus into, whether it's looking at a forecast for me or, you know, things like that, that isn't tied to your career. Um, and I wonder if you've you've encountered, you know, much, much experience with um with that kind of thing as well. Yes, and very much so, because I think these hobbies, particularly kind of sporting or physical hobbies are. They're they're, they're metaphors for your life. You know, when you're when you're depressed, you're often without hope. You yeah. can't see a better future for yourself. You can't see yourself as a better version of yourself than you currently are. Yeah. Um, but the act, even just the act of getting in the water, is is a process where you have to take action to create a result to to, to create an end result. Yeah. You no. Know, you had to get up, you had to put your wetsuit on, you had to leave the house, you had to brave the cold water, you had to get all your gear together, you had to take on the challenge of, of, of battling the elements, staying on the board. Every time you do it, I'm sure you're aiming, whether you're aware of it or not, at being incrementally better than you were last time. Yeah. I know it's fun, but it's also, there is fun to be had in improving, learning, yeah. how to master your craft and what is that teaching you it's teaching you that in any area of your life you're capable of making a start and building on that start incrementally to end up better at something than you were yesterday so if it's if the metaphor is windsurfing then it's it's you take that on board uh, within your life in, in terms of kind of remaking yourself as a person better than you were yesterday, mm. you know, constantly push to use the kind of the language of um, the British cycling team. You're looking for those, for those marginal gains. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I guess it is. That's a really nice way of looking at it of a, a metaphor. And I think it's, it's why a lot of the time when people do find these these sports or they, they kind of find that thing that they really love doing, I think it really can be a turning point for a, for an awful lot of people. And I, I consider myself very, very lucky that I found it when I was 18 years old. Yes. Yeah. I, and I think um, we have it for ourselves and we can take it from uh, from 
professional sports as well. Yeah. When you think about how how uh, you know the best managers in the world go about getting sterling performances out of their best players. Yeah. You know, and apply that to yourself. Be your own manager. Yeah. You yeah. Know, how 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 would you treat yourself as a kind of high performing sports star to get the best out of yourself? Yeah. Uh, um, but we it, it, sort of going back to whether I start kind of physically or more mentally, I want to create a little bit of physical feel good, whether that's through somebody making some some quick and impactful nutritional changes or through exercise or something like that, because the first mindset exercise or practice I go through with anyone is vision setting. And when you're saying to somebody for the first time, you know, if you had a magic wand and you could change absolutely everything at once, where would you be in a year's time? Yeah. Where would you like to be in a year's time? You want them bringing as much positivity and energy to that as they can possibly muster. Um, and being in a place of, of confidence and relaxation um, and you know when you come when you come off your windsurf that's probably the best moment for you to sit down and do some kind of visualization for the future yeah because you're not fearful of anything you're not uptight or anxious about anything you're yeah. completely chilled you're in the flow yeah you're in, your, you're in your state of free nature you feel most like sandy yeah so if we want if we want you to be feeling like the best version of sandy and to um, to kind of imagine what he would look like in a year's time or three years or five years time. Let's get you doing it straight off, straight off windsurfing. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because it, it gets you catching people in the right mindset is is a really crucial part of it. And then and then building upon that, and that's that's the that was my my realization in studying nutritional therapy, training as a nutritional therapist, studying, you know, sports science, training methodologies, all of this stuff was that I could write somebody the best protocol that would handle every single one of their health issues, would clear up every symptom. Yeah. But it's not worth the paper it's written on. Yeah. If it's not applied, yeah. Then why is it not applied, or why do people start applying it and then stop? Mm. You know, mindset. Yeah. So all of that, all of the knowledge and the research and the, you know, the kind of science-backed protocols and everything else is wonderful. Yeah. But unless you can get somebody to get up every day and not rely on motivation not rely on pushing themselves, but being pulled towards this, you know, this vision of their future self that's inspiring, that emotionally resonates with them. Yeah. Drags them towards, pulls them towards their better self instead of them feeling like it's a constant uphill battle to get there. Without that, they don't get up and pursue the marginal gains every day. Yeah. That's, I mean, I know, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of start, start finishing up, but the, to go on from that, 
I guess in a certain sense, and I've said I'm you know quite interested in in kind of the industry and the job you do now and things. Essentially, you're trying to you're trying to get rid of the client eventually, aren't you? You're trying to give them yeah. the power. You're trying to you're trying to put yourself out of a job each time because you I, you want you want to make yourself redundant. Yeah, exactly. That's why I was yeah. You want you want them. I guess you're giving them the tools to to essentially go on. You know, it, hopefully in a month or two months or however long, you ain't gonna need me, mate. You know. Yes, I. I want, I, ideally, I want everybody to have done the intense initial work yeah. in three months. Now, in reality, it takes four or five or six months. Right. But I, if I'm still doing in-depth, intense, month one, month two stuff in month eight. You start going. Then I've not done my job properly and or they weren't the right client for me. Yeah, that's that's difficult as well because it must be there must be a certain level of I, I don't I don't want to say personal preference, but I can't really think of a better term. But you know, sometimes you do know, don't you? You get into a room and you're like, this, you know, it's it it's not kind of we, we don't necessarily match, you know. It, it's often it it as well as there being that you're looking for that um, kind of personality match. It's also about timing. Yeah, true. You know, um, it's it's hard. It's very it's very hard to coach a fixed mindset person. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Somebody thinks they are the way they are, and they'll never be any different. Well, it's a tough place to start from. (laughs) Tough place to start from. So, if it unless somebody has the kind of realization that something needs to change a belief that they're capable of change and a really strong desire to make it happen. It's probably not worth signing up now. Uh, I was going to say, I'm sure you, you probably, surely you don't get that many people that have that kind of mindset signing up in the first place, really. Um, I mean, that's, that's your, I, the fixed mindset person, do you mean, or the person with all their ducks in a row? You like the fixed the fixed mindset person no no quite right quite right um and it's un it, it's really unrewarding for me and it's a waste of oh, yeah it's, un- it's unrewarding for me because they want to be prescribed yeah you know the the you know somebody really cares about making a change if they get so excited and enthused about the idea that they're going away, doing their own research, leading their own protocol, yeah. coming back and just checking, oh, I read this, I saw this, what do you think about this? You go, right, that person's going somewhere. They care, yeah, yeah, yeah. The person that says to me, I want you to tell me exactly what to eat, in what quantity, at what time. Yeah, you're not a babysitter at the end of I'm, the day. I, I'm just another crutch. That's yeah. all I am to that person. I'm another crutch. Yeah. Um, and and they could achieve great things over three to four months, stop working with me, and they'll be back where they were in two to three months' time. Because if it was just if it's just spoon fed, it never make, never it's not ingrained. It's not ingrained. There's no real shift in the knowledge base. There's no real expansion of self knowledge going on there. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult. Yeah. Well. I mean, genuinely, Rory, I feel feel like I feel like I could chat to you for hours. I think we're going to have to do a round two a couple of months down the line or something. Yeah, yeah, we should. 
Hopefully you can do it in person, Sandy. Well, that I was going to say, fingers crossed, that would that would be really nice. But um, just quickly before we finish up, I've just got a couple of quick fire questions that I'd just like to ask everyone. Um, obviously, as I said at the start, one of the whole ideas of the podcast was is is and the reason it's called the After Hours Lounge is is it's this idea of you know men in particular used to meet at the pub after work and they they'd sit and they'd have a beer and you'd meet someone and you'd just strike up a conversation and, and have a bit of a chat. So. Drinking beers has always been a bit of the podcast and, and things like that. As I said, I've not had one today because, if I'm honest, I forgot to put them in the fridge and no one wants a warm beer. Um, so, I mean, are you, and, and given everything we spoke about earlier with your, your previous career and things, I mean, do you do you still drink? Are you still a, are you still a, a booze man? And then with your with your um, IBD and stuff, what is your, what's your tipple of choice? Um, I still drink. I yep. do. Uh, I'm, I'm more moderate than I used to be. Right. Um, and learning moderation has been a journey in and of itself. Yeah. It felt a lot easier just to, to knock it on the head altogether at one point. Yeah. Um, but moderation was the harder path, so that's the one I chose. Um, what do I like? I like I like a really good chablis. Right. Um, I like uh, a gin or vodka-based cocktail. Yeah. Preferably, preferably something very, very clean. So you don't you do not drink um you don't you don't drink beer or anything then really? I do. I mean, I'd probably have I'd probably have a pint of Guinness for the first game of the Six Nations. Right. Okay. It feels appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I um, if I drink lager, I'll get a I'll get a Corona because Light. it's made from corn and not wheat. Right. So it doesn't um, it doesn't contain gluten. Yeah. So it doesn't have say nice. Yeah. That's my that's my lager choice. Fair enough. Nice. Um, where is your your happy place? Obviously, you're obviously you know fairly well well travelled man. And given we've not been able to really move that much in the last year, um, if you yeah click click your fingers right now, where uh, where are you? Well, I'd be under a very heavy barbell. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be I'd, I'd be squatting some heavy weight. You just does doesn't matter. You just want to be back in back in the gym lifting some tin. I miss the gym so much so much are you um are you, now, now that you're based in the in the witterings are you gonna go and see uh uh ben at wittering wittering fitness i've done a podcast i, I, I see ben about twice twice a week because he parks near me when he goes for his morning swim and i'm walking the dog right um and i have been in and worked out there before i'm not quite sure where i'll go where everything reopens nice. i toyed with building my own garage gym but i i'm, I'm desperate to get back around like-minded people so yeah I'll be I'll be going back somewhere definitely. That's cool. Yeah. No, I, I did a I did a podcast with Ben. It was it was really good actually. It was it was one of those funny ones. I I never met him the couple of years that I that I lived in the Witterings, but um, yeah, I think we we somehow got in got in contact and I did a podcast with him. And it's yeah, it's pretty pretty cool what he's um what he's managed to build over there. It's really great. It, yeah, it is. It is, and um, got he's got a great ethos behind what he's doing as yeah. well. Yeah, and a strong mindset. No mirrors. Uh, sorry. No, no mirrors. He has no mirrors in the gym. No mirrors. No mirrors. Yeah. I've got no time. Mirrors. No mirrors for curls. Yeah, exactly. I've done. I did a podcast with a guy called um, Lewis Cheatham from up in the Highlands of Scotland as well, and he's like a kind of semi-professional powerlifter and things like that as well. And he he lifts a ridiculous amount of weight. Like I, I mean, I couldn't couldn't pull the number out of my head, but yeah, he he lifts a, a very very silly amount, and you see him, and I'm just like. Yeah, he's he's not a man you would want to mess with, that's for sure. No, but I'm sure I'm sure he's a gentle soul. 
Yeah, yeah, that's the thing you find with most of these people, don't you? Um, and then finally, um, I'm a, again, you know, we've not been able to move that much. This is, uh, It's actually been a really lovely podcast because we haven't talked about COVID once and we won't continue to. But um, I'm, I'm a bit of a, I don't know. Yeah, I've, I, I love my movies. Bit of a cinephile, I suppose. Um, I don't know if, if you're the same, but what have you been what have you been watching throughout uh, throughout lockdown throughout the last year? Have you seen yeah TV movie recommendations? Hit me with them. I've um, got it. When you ask questions like this, there's this yeah, it's so difficult. Isn't it? <laughs> intense, there's this intense desire to come up with something something nobody's never heard of yet is utterly life-changing uh, no the, the best the best thing i've seen in the last year was because we we were talking about kind of sport as metaphor uh was the last dance the the, the, the documentary about jordan and the bulls yeah i've still uh, not watched it everyone everyone so many people say it to me phenomenal. yeah other i've been watching a lot of um crime related stuff Right. Which I think is just the kind of nature of the household and what everybody likes. But uh, no, I think other than The Last Dance, well, actually, you'll spot the theme here. Uh, the Tiger Woods two-part documentary on Sky Documentaries was also yeah. really good for a, a fascinating exploration of the guy's psychology. Yeah, I'd love to watch that, actually. I've not, I've not seen that. I've... I've just started watching um, the F1 Drive to Survive on Netflix as well, which yeah. is that's really cool because I'm, okay. I'm not a, I don't watch Formula One whatsoever. It's not something I mean I'm familiar with the names obviously, but um, it's not something I'm into. And I'm on episode five of season one, and I'm like I can't stop watching it. It's it's really cool. I think anything like that that offers you an insight into how uh, like high performing individuals handle pressure is so interesting. All stuff that we can borrow from. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, yeah, that's part, you know, as I said, it's part of the reason why I started this podcast, just so I can talk to all these people and just get new perspectives. Um, so yeah, but anyway, Rory, thank you very much. Where, um, where can anyone listening find you on, on social media or anything like that? They can follow me on Instagram at Rory McDonald.coach. I'm a MAC McDonald rather than an MC. A McDonald. I'm a McDonald. And uh, my my website domain is very similar, www.rorymcdonald.coach. So at, doc, at rorymcdonald.coach on Instagram, yep. at rorymcdonald.coach on the web. Um, yeah, have yeah. a look, check it out, get in contact. Um, I am more than happy. In fact... Anyone who drops me an email at uh, Rory at RoryMcDonald.coach saying I heard the podcast, I will have a chat to them gratis for 45 minutes, an hour, whatever they've got time for, anything they want to discuss around their mind, mindset and their health and how the two interrelate and how I might be able to help them. Great, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be, I'll promote that as well on, on, uh, on my channel. So yeah, you can, you can find me as well, guys, on at the After Hours Lounge on Instagram. Um, please like, share, subscribe, follow, all that usual uh, nonsense, uh, both on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also leave a review. And if you are really enjoying the work I'm doing, you can also buy me a beer via the link in my bio. As I said, all this uh, talking is thirsty work, so you can donate to the podcast through there as well. Uh, but yeah, thank you again, Rory. 
Um, and thank you very much to everyone listening. And we will see you for the next one.